This is from Matthew. This is the book we're going to be lingering in this fall in this series called Upside Down Kingdom. In those days, John the Baptist came. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and he was saying, this is what he was preaching about, repent or turn for the kingdom of heaven has come near or it's here. Hello. This is who uh, John is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. When, when Isaiah said a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Isaiah was talking about this John. His clothes were made of camel's hair. Uh, He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He would get asked to leave coffee shops. People went out from him to Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region. So he was a celebrity preacher. People are coming from everywhere to hear this guy. And they weren't just going to listen to him. They were confessing their sins. It's an odd thing. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when John saw a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious elites, coming out to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume or don't think to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. We're fine. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree, every person, he's saying metaphorically, that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. He's talking about Jesus, the very next verse after this, whose sandals, I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. And he will baptize you with something better than water, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, there's a pick-me-up. Let's pray and then we'll take a look at this. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, our prayer is that you would come and do for us tonight the things that we just can't do for ourselves. We can't get our eyes open enough to see you. We can't find that place that you can push a button and our heart becomes soft again and moldable. We can't reach into our neurons and produce interest and curiosity. We can't even know how this has any bearing on our lives, on my life, unless you do all of those things for us. But you love to do those things for us. You say you do. And so we ask you to make true on your promise tonight and do these things for us because you love us, because you're good, because you're kind. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So John the Baptist starts his little sermon or his little preaching this way. He says, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, which means it's here, which means this is not an alarm you can push snooze on. The king has come to town and you've got to deal with him because he's standing right in front of you now. Um, You can't hit snooze on this. You can't punt and deal with it at a later moment. That's what he means when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I can't think of how to describe what this means because we don't talk this way. Nobody talks this way. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. What does it mean? I can't think of how to describe what this means without immediately my, my brain just shoots back to C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. If you grew up around the church or whatever, you're probably familiar with this. If you didn't, you're probably not. 
It's a story about these four kids in England, and they're playing hide-and-seek or something in their house, and <coughs> some of the kids hide in the pantry, and uh, they push open the back end of it, and it's uh, this portal into this whole other realm called Narnia, this kingdom, this magical kingdom called Narnia. And uh, C.S. Lewis, this whole, he has this whole series of books about what life is like in this, the land of Narnia. It's a fairy tale. And in this land of Narnia, the king of this realm is named Aslan. He's a huge lion. He's jacked. He's, he's powerful. He's majestic. And his name is Aslan. And he's kind of the Jesus figure in, in C.S. Lewis's story, Chronicles of Narnia. And when the kids kind of bust into Narnia by accident, they're obviously like, where are we? But it's wintertime. It's snow everywhere. Their breath, you can like see it in the air. It's like not just cool little, oh, it's snow today, but like miserable winter, bitter cold. Like the sharp icicles and everything of winter. And they end up talking to some people and they figure out why it's this bitter, miserable winter in Narnia. There's this other character called the White Witch, and she's kind of the devil figure in in Chronicles of Narnia. And she had cursed the kingdom of Narnia. And Lewis describes it this brilliant way. He says, since she cursed it, it was always winter but never Christmas in Narnia. Always winter but never Christmas. Think about what gets you through December, January, February. It's that month leading up to Christmas. It's the celebration, the holiday, the presents, all of it. He described the curse as a bitter, bitter winter with no Christmas. I lived bitter, bitter winters when I lived in Philadelphia. They were miserable because it would get dark at like 4.45 p.m. The, I, the, the sidewalks, the driveways were like ice for about three months from December when it first snowed until like middle of March sometimes when it began to thaw. So you couldn't go for jogs. There was just ice or snow on all the lawns. It was overcast and drizzly every day or snowing. It was miserable. You felt like your muscles were all atrophying in the wintertime because all you did is go to class, get in your car and drive home and go to bed. It was like, that's what he's trying to describe. It's not a good public service announcement for Philadelphia, but it was miserable winter times. And we all, everybody's attitude changed when late March came around. Everybody was taking pictures of stuff. The city came back to life. People were taking walks again. Parks were filling up with people. Food trucks were coming back out. Sports were playing again. It was amazing. Trees that were brown and dead all year long were like bursting with purple flowers. And that happened in Narnia too. Lewis describes this slow thaw that started to happen. Started with one drop coming off an icicle. What's that? There's never been a drop that's come off an icicle. There's another few drops. Little streams start popping up through Narnia. The winter is thawing. Little branches begin to peek out. Grass comes back and turns green again. Snow melts. And they ask this this character called Father Christmas, what's happening? It's melting. And he said, Aslan is on the move and springtime is coming. What he means is, C.S. Lewis was was an atheist who was trying to disprove Christianity. He was converted in the process of that. He became a Christian. Chronicles of Narnia is his attempt to communicate to children and to adults, because we think like children too, what the gospel is. And he's saying that wherever Aslan goes, springtime goes with him. 
thawing happens. Wherever Jesus Christ goes, life starts poking out of deadness. Blossoms come back. Beauty replaces ugliness. Restoration happens where Aslan goes, where Jesus goes. Which is to say this, wherever the king is, is where the kingdom is. I know this is a little, this is abstract, like we live in a democracy. We don't, if we lived in England, it would be a little bit easier. <clears throat> but wherever, you want to know where is the kingdom, what's the kingdom of God? It's springtime. What's the kingdom of God? It's when the darkness and the curse and the brokenness and the sadness of this world, if you're honest, you're nodding your head right now. If you're naive, you don't know what I'm talking about. It's where that thaws and begins to give way to good things again. Relational reconciliation. People who were made by God, who finally know Him and love Him and enjoy Him. Um, Where uh, injustice is pushed back. Where racism is repented of and left behind. That's what the kingdom of God brings with it. Justice, reconciliation, salvation, rescue, refreshment, rest. It's springtime. Well, where does springtime happen? Where's the kingdom of God? It's wherever the king is, right? Wherever Aslan goes is where spring is. Wherever Jesus goes is where the kingdom is. Where this full-orbed restoration happens. All pieces of creation start to reintegrate and come back to life. That's what the kingdom is. It's where springtime comes to your soul. Think about that. Think about a cold, icy heart where it gets dark at 4.45 p.m. every day. You just live under a shadow. Life's hard. You don't know where you are. You're confused. You don't know where God is. You have no idea what some of the words we just read in this passage mean. Repentance? What's that? Kingdom? Jesus? What? I can barely, you know, tie my shoelaces spiritually. What's this? What's he talking about? That's a beautiful idea if that's where you are. All of us are to some extent. That coldness of heart, right? That deadness. And springtime comes to the depths of your being and blossoms and flowers start replacing deadness. And things start moving again. That's what the kingdom means. That's what the kingdom means. And so if that's what the kingdom of heaven is... That's what John is preaching about. He says that kingdom, that springtime is here. Winter is now thawing because Aslan is here. Jesus came. This is about 30 AD at this point. He's saying the king is here. He's been here for 30 years, but he's here. And he's about to kind of make his debut right after this passage. So here's my question. If That's awesome news, right? It'd be like if in mid-February in Philadelphia someone could flip a switch and birds come back immediately, all the snow melts, trees blossom, parks fill up, food is in the, like smells of food in the air. It's as if you could go flip a switch and immediately that happens. That's awesome news, right? So why, if, if that's what John is announcing, hey, a new day is here. Night's over, morning has come. If that's what he's announcing, why this dark stuff... Two, he's talking about repentance, repentance, repentance. Even if you're not a religious person, you, you probably associate that word with repentance is when I'm supposed to feel bad about what I've done, right? Or feel sorry for sinning or hurting someone or hurting God. Or maybe you think of repentance as stop it, just stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff. 
If, if he has good news to announce, why does he start it with repent? Why does he say repent because the kingdom has come near, it's here? <coughs> why that word at the beginning? The reason he starts by saying repent is because none of you, nor me, nor any of those people, nor John the Baptist himself were blank slates. He's not showing up to people who were clean and just needed some new news. Like, hey, guess what? Springtime's here. He was talking to people who had, who had and were participants in that dark, bitter, cold, nasty winter. We're not just victims of that nasty winter. We're perpetrators of it, too. We participate in the bad stuff that happens in this world. We're not blank slates. I was thinking about this earlier. This might not be the best metaphor, but some of your classes already this past week, your professors, your blank slates in it. He, he or she can start on day one. You're off to the races. You're moving forward. And it's probably some technical class like, I don't know, maybe a, a biology class or maybe a physics class because we don't come in with a ton of misconceptions or misperceptions about biology or physics, right? Because most of us don't spend our days thinking about that. Your professors don't have to do a lot of deconstruction on day one, right? They just start with instruction. Think, on the other hand, maybe a philosophy class or a communications class. They got to do a lot of deconstruction there. Probably the first half, if not the whole of your semester, is undoing stuff that you showed up with. Like in your speech classes, stop saying, um, 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 or whatever. Stop fiddling with yourself or doing whatever. They have, to, they have to, you're not a blank slate in the things that you, you're an expert in. You've spent your whole life doing these things. You have these habits, you have baggage, so they have to undo it before they can construct and teach you new things. That's what John is doing. That's what God is doing throughout Scripture. When he starts with something like repent, it's good news, number one, because he knows his people, right? I mean, you could hear this, you might, man, I feel judged. God just told me to repent first words out of his mouth here in this sermon or you can say wow how encouraging God actually gets what my life is like I don't have to hide because he actually knows my life's really messy and he knows I'm not a good person geez that's a relief I can stop I can take the costume off I can stop pretending I can stop acting like I'm someone that I'm not because he clearly sees that I'm not who I present myself to be. Because the first words out of his mouth is, repent. He's deconstructing. He's taking away before he builds back. Why? We're not blank slates. Our lives are littered with all those little kingdoms that you and I live for. If you were here last week, that's what we talked about. The little itty-bitty little kingdoms that we give our big, important lives to, right? We get hung up on all the little stuff, remember? Like... We fixate, Anna, you weren't here. I threw you under the bus a little bit about the cabinets, but then I threw myself under the bus because I. she leaves the cabinets open. I get well worked up about it. And I treat the, the cabinet left ajar as far more important as my marriage to my wife. I get hooked and caught up on the stupidest little stuff, and it eclipses and blinds me to the important big stuff. And you do too, Right? And it's not just that you get more bothered by the toothpaste in your sink than your relationship with your roommate. It's also that you and I settle for such tiny, 
little lives. Such tiny, itty-bitty, silly little kingdoms. And because we're so fixated on that, we are blinded and lose sight of the kingdom, the big mega kingdom that you were made to live in. You were made for big stuff. We get fixated on the little stuff. When John looks at us and says, you're not blank slates, that's what he's talking about. You are already allegiant to a thousand other kings, right? John is like a good best man at a wedding. So John's sitting up here and he's watching his best friend come down the aisle to marry his fiance. And John's like, whoa, 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 dude, you got to go break up with that other girl you've been seeing. Like this relationship can't happen while that relationship is still happening. You have two allegiances and that doesn't work, right? Jesus said, no, no man, no woman can serve two masters. You will either love one, or he says, you will love one and hate the other. You can't, you weren't made for two masters. You were made for one master. John is saying, hey, this is where we got to start. If you want to prepare your heart, whether you're a Christian in the room tonight or not, whether you even know anything about God or not, if you want to know what can I do to prepare my heart for God, this is John's answer. Repent. Own up. Be honest. Come out of the closet and own it publicly in the light. I'm a kingdom builder. I, am a, I have a PhD in kingdom architecture. I wake up and I start thinking about my kingdoms, which could be your weight or your appearance. It could be your grades and your academic success. It could be your financial standing. It could be attention from guys or from girls. It could be all of those things. We are always building those kingdoms, and it's our turf, right? So when other people trespass on it and a friend calls you out, you get angry. So do I. When someone threatens to take it away from you, you get defensive or panicked, right? When the thing that you most love, the thing that you've given your life to, the kingdom that you're living for, the king that you serve, when someone threatens to take that away, we panic because we can't imagine life without it, right? That's what John is saying. We got to talk about that. He's saying, hey, there's an elephant in the room. We got to deal with the elephant because it's right there and everyone sees it. Let's talk about it before we move on. That's why he's saying, repent. Own up to it. Tell God to his face, I'm guilty. I do it. Not just I did it. I do it. I did it today. I built my kingdom. I did this to get attention from other people. I did that so I'd look good in my professor's eyes. I, did, I, I, I pursued that convenience because I just love comfort. I don't care what it does to my roommates. It's owning up to that. It's answering the call to abandon your abandonment of God. I was thinking about it. It's a weird definition of what repentance is, but maybe I like it. Repentance is abandoning your abandonment of God. It's coming home. That's what repentance is. Again, doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. The Bible, which claims to be the authoritative interpretation of reality, says that God made you for himself. Home is anywhere he is. If he made you for himself, then being with him is where home is. Repentance is going home. 
Repentance is like Dunkirk when you look up and realize home has come to you. There's still something left for you to do in that scenario, right? You can stay on the beach, die, or you can get on one of the boats that's come for you and go home. God sends John the Baptist to go to the people. He comes to your doorstep and he knocks and he says, Your name, Ben. Repent. Come home. And you say, How do I get home? He says, home's right here. Home came to get you. Leave these foolish ways behind you. Abandon. Be done with your abandonment of God. Turn your back on your back turning. This God has come for you. And so move towards Him. That's what repentance means. Now listen, there's two things that are required if this repentance is going to happen in you, if it's going to be legit repentance, because we're going to talk in just a second, and we'll end tonight by talking about counterfeit repentance. There's a fake repentance that we're experts in too, and it's super close to the real repentance. There's two things that are required. You have to know your true condition. And we've just been talking about it, right? <clears throat> you got to know you're not a blank slate. I'm just putting this out there because it needs to be said. And I'm not saying that y'all, this is true of y'all. I'm we, me, us. We are not good people. You can't move past, if you can't get to that point in your life, in your perception of yourself, you can't advance any further with God. The starting point of a relationship with God is looking in the mirror and saying to the depths of your eyes and your soul, I'm not good. I'm not the way I should be. The reason I feel guilty is I'm guilty. That's where this starts. That's knowing your condition. And it's, it takes enormous courage to say the con is up. The lies that I throw to everybody else that they believe, they just aren't true. That's a really gutsy thing to look in the mirror and say. But that's the starting point. Without repentance, there's no entrance to the kingdom. Without repentance, there's no spring. Because you're still choosing to live in that delusion. This is a really uncomfortable thing, right? Yeah. I got to do this. You got to do this. This is the call to everybody. You got to know your true condition. It's the first thing. You also have to know why Jesus came. You got to know why Jesus came. If you don't know much about the Bible, it's the story of Jesus coming and telling you why he came. We read the passage last week. This is why Jesus came. He said in that passage in Luke 4, I've come to proclaim good news to poor people. In other words, people who never get good news. I've come to proclaim freedom and to accomplish freedom for those of you who are enslaved to whatever vices and addictions and habits and patterns you can't get out of. And he said, the reason I came was to restore sight to the blind. He's not just talking about the physically blind. He's talking about the spiritually blind. People who have no idea where they are or where God is or how to get from where they are to where He is. He came to give you sight. Not to, you know that little game where you're blindfolded and your friends tell you where to go? That's not what God does. God comes and picks you up and He touches your eyes and He gives you eyes so that you can see the way the world really is. Jesus says, I came to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor, not judgment. John three seventeen. 
No one knows that verse. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his Son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but will have eternal life. John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through his Son the world might be saved. Jesus will come again one day and he will come to judge because he is the judge and he doesn't let unjust injustice or unjust people get away with it. And you should be glad for that. That's what John means when he says, you brood of vipers, are you fleeing the wrath to come? John's looking ahead to the next time Jesus comes. The first time Jesus came and up until tonight is to save you from yourself. That's why Jesus came. You've got to know your true condition. You've got to know why Jesus came. Here's where this matters. There was a church father, which means like he was a super important figure in the early church in the hundreds or two hundreds. His name was Jerome. He wrote, uh, in, in something that's been discovered, he wrote that he had a dream one night in which Jesus visited him. Jerome says, in the dream, uh, he said, uh, sorry, in the dream, he, Jerome, collected all his money and he offered it to Jesus as a gift. Jesus said, I don't want your money, Jerome. So he rounded up all his possessions and he tried to give them to Jesus. And Jesus responded, Jerome, I don't want your possessions. So then he turned to Christ and he asked, then what can I give you? What do you want from me? Jesus simply replied, give me your sins, Jerome. That is what I came for. I came to take away your sins. That's what Jesus came to get. Yeah, he came to take something from you. Your guilt, your death, your condemnation, your shame, your lifelessness. Our addiction to all these little kingdoms that are leading us nowhere but to our own demise. But he didn't come to get your money or your possessions or your devotion or your performance or your rituals or your religion. He came to take your sins. If you remember your condition and if you remember why he came, then you will be able to repent instead of pretending. Let's end tonight by getting really practical. What's the difference in real repentance and fake repentance? What is the difference in religion and the gospel? They're two different things. Paul sums it up beautifully in Romans 2, 4. If you know me, you know this because we talk about it all the time. Paul, it's this little formula. How, you, how do you know whether what you're doing with God is religion and has no power, isn't going anywhere, and doesn't make you, doesn't reconcile you to God, or whether what you're doing is the gospel and has, has married you to God? You're alive in Him now. Here's the difference. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, Do you not know that the goodness, the kindness, and the patience of God is meant to lead you to repentance? The order is crucial. Do you not know that the goodness, the kindness, and the patience of God, the grace of God, is meant to lead you to a changed life, to changed behavior? Religion's the opposite. Religion is changed behavior or your repentance makes God have to be patient, kind, and gracious to you. Religion or fake repentance is going through all the religious motions, the rituals, doing the stuff you got to do to keep God happy and to keep Him off your back and out of your business. And that is an exhausting way to live, right? 
And it doesn't do anything with your guilt. I spent 24 years of my life living that life. And I hated God because he was a slave driver, not a rescuer, not a redeemer, not a savior. What I was doing was never good enough for that slave driver. I, I heard this just call come out of, be good, stop doing this, start doing that. Don't you know better? Why are you still dealing with this? So I tried to fix my stuff together and take it to God and say, look, God, I repented. I feel really bad about that stuff. I'm trying, like me and my buddies are trying to make Friday nights not as crazy as they always are. We're trying. Aren't you happy now? Won't you be patient with me and kind and gracious? If you get nothing else from tonight, please liberate yourself from that BS. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. That's not the Bible. It's slavery. And God doesn't want anything to do with it. The gospel is the opposite. Home comes to you and says, get on the boat. Not, here's some paddling instructions to cross the English Channel. The gospel is God shows up on your doorstep and he says, do you want to live? Because I can make you live. I'm the God of resurrection. I'm the God of life. I'm the one who made you. I can remake you too. All that's left is, do you want to get on the boat and repent and abandon your abandonment of him and come home? Or do you want to remain on the shore and seal your fate? That's what's here. And so gospel repentance, gospel change, grace-driven change, mercy-driven change is when we are able to be honest and upfront and transparent with God because you know He sees you, but you also know that He sent His Son for people just as messed up as you. So you're not afraid for him to see you. You know you're not holy. You know you're not righteous. You know you don't do all the stuff you're supposed to do. But you also know he came for sinners, not for the righteous. Those are Jesus' direct words. And so you're okay with him seeing you the way you are. Because you know your condition and you know why he came. Let me ask you this. If someone tomorrow tackles you on iMall with a blanket and rolls through the grass on top of you, Would you resist it? (laughs) Yes. You would fight back. If I gave you one more piece of information, would it change how you respond? If I said that you are on fire and someone runs up to you with a blanket or a sheet, tackles you and rolls on top of you in the grass, would you resist it? No. Because you're aware of your condition. I'm on fire. And you're aware of why this person running at you with a blanket is running at you. To save me. Some of you have been resisting God your whole lives. Because you think he's the person on I'm all running after you. And you're like, why? Who is, what's this weird, like this religious, what, what is this? And you've, you've pushed him away and you're rejecting him. You're running from him and you don't understand him. Because you don't understand your condition. You are on fire. You're dead. And he's running at you to tackle you with his mercy and his grace to make you alive again. If you know your condition and you know who he is and why he came, you will find true repentance breaking out in your life. How about one example? This is a, a, this, this last story of what this would look like in your academic life. What does true repentance versus fake repentance look like? Here's a quick case study. Uh, a pastor 
um, mentor of ours uh, wrote that his name is Joe Novenson. He said, at the beginning of every semester, professors say to college students, on such and such a date, your term paper will be due. But it's easy to get sidetracked with all the different activities. And when the due date is tomorrow, you suddenly realize your paper's not ready. You go to your professor's office and you say, Professor, <clears throat> you wouldn't believe what happened to me. My roommate got sick. The library didn't have one of the reference books that I needed. It was already checked out. And my roommate didn't put toner in the printer, so I have no way to even print the stuff that I get, did get done. He said, you say anything but the truth, hoping the professor will be merciful and give you a break. You pretend, in other words. <coughs> Probably very few of us have ever walked into a professor's office and said, you gave an assignment several months ago. It was fair, and I understood it clearly. Unfortunately, I watched too much Netflix, and I took way too many nights off from schoolwork. <laughs> I neglected to do what I should have done and knew I needed to do. I was undisciplined, and I procrastinated. And now I don't have my assignment done on time. I have no excuses. It was all my fault. Do whatever you think is right. And this pastor asked, why don't people operate that way? Why have very few of us ever walked into a professor's office or a boss or a parent and just been honest? Why do we pretend? The question of this passage is, why do we pretend with God too? The Pharisees did it. The Sadducees did it. They're posturing. Look, we're the sons of Abraham. John's like, big whoop. God could raise, say to these rocks, be a son, and they'd be a son. We hide behind all this stuff, trying to find other ways to become presentable to God. Don't you know that the grace of God frees you to walk into his office, as it were, and to say, I'm not the person I should be. I'm not the person you call me to be. I don't love my neighbor. I love myself. I'm not responsible. I'm irresponsible. All these excuses I give are just lies. They're not true. Would you have mercy? The kingdom that John is preaching is a kingdom where a king comes and dies for his people so that you wouldn't have to die. And he lives a perfect life for you because you didn't live a perfect life. And he says, here, this is yours. And you get to live with God forever. That's what we're talking about this fall. Hope you come back and hear more about it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're a good king. You're Aslan. Wherever you are, there is springtime. We need springtime in our souls. We need springtime in our relationships. We need springtime to come in our relationship with you. So show us your power. Walk by us. Come to us. And say to us, come home. Get in the boat. Repent. Pray that we would hear that even tonight and respond.